Hello out there, friends in the virtual universe. We're here in September 2020, a time which Adrian Marie Brown recently reminded us is not just an election season, but a genocide intervention era. Let's just start out with facing reality. I'm going to try to keep up the theme of getting real with you today. But first, a little bit about where I am. The leaves are just beginning to fall where I live on the path where I walk and run near my house in Cobbs Creek on a territory known to the Lenape people as Lenape Hoking, called by William Penn, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Cobbs Creek was called Karakung by the Lenape, who had settlements on its banks up until the 17th century when Penn founded his colony here. I walk by it several times a week, and I love seeing the creek Karakung change in different seasons, watching the place turn magnificent colors in fall, the forest fade in winter as trees become bare, the earth floor growing green again in the spring and then blooming in abundant overgrowth in summer. It is now a full year since I moved back to this place from Nashville, Tennessee, and a full year since I've been ordained in the United Church of Christ. In that year, we have seen white supremacy sink its teeth in and also resistance of epic proportions as the movement for black lives has grown to be the largest grassroots social movement in U.S. history. You're listening to The Word is Resistance, the podcast where we're exploring what our sacred texts have to teach us about living, surviving, even thriving in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression, the times in which we are living today. What do our sacred stories have to teach us as white folks about our role in resistance and about showing up in collective liberation? In this very not ordinary time, we are following the journey of the people of Israel from Abraham through the Exodus to arrival in the Promised Land. This journey of wrestling, oppression, liberation, mistakes, and harm has lessons to teach us about freedom. What does it mean to be free? What does it take to be free? The song that you'll hear at various points is a live recording of Dr. Vincent Harding's song for the Freedom Movement, We Are Building Up a New World. This is a recording from a multiracial movement choir practice in Denver, Colorado, in December 2014, being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. Wow, that's six years ago now. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use the song for this podcast. This is a podcast designed with white listeners in mind. That's intentional. It is, of course, for anyone and everyone to listen to, and we deeply value feedback from listeners of color and those who faith traditions that are not Christian. But we are acknowledging that white folks, especially white Christians, have extra work to do. That it is our responsibility to learn how to resist the forces of white supremacy that we are complicit with. This podcast is about using our religious teachings to help us in the work of resisting whiteness, including challenging racism within the tradition itself and other forms of supremacy, domination, and empire. I want to talk to you in this episode about money. I want to talk to you frankly and honestly about money, about how we think about it, what we feel about it, what it does to us about God and money and resources. I want to talk to you about manna in the wilderness. Courage, sisters, don't get weary. 
moving through the Exodus story, a story of freedom. Exodus 16, 2 through 15 is a part in that story that feels so real and so human. I love it. The formerly enslaved, recently emancipated Hebrews are journeying with Moses, his older sister Miriam, and brother Aaron out of Egypt. They are in the wilderness. The memory of Egypt is not far behind, with that final vision of Pharaoh's chariot sinking, as God did a phenomenal thing to drive the Egyptians into the sea. And yet, something is still compelling about Egypt, and what was available in the empire that they had left. Egypt brutalized the Hebrews for 40 years, but at least there was food there. In the 27th episode of this podcast, from September 24, 2017, Nicola did a commentary on this same text. It's called The Meat Pots of White Supremacy. Promise me you'll go listen to it after this one. It's super powerful, and she focuses on these flesh pots in verse 16.3, the pots of food supply that Hebrews could access. Not like now in the story when they've been wandering in the desert and they're feeling the pain and exhaustion of hunger in their bodies and bones now that there is not a reliable food supply. Since Nicola did such a good job thinking about the meat pots in relation to whiteness, I'm going to focus on the second part of this text and about what happens next. Let's read from 16.4 to the end of the passage at 16.15. Then the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to rain bread from heaven for you, and each day the people shall go out and gather enough for that day. In that way I will test them whether they will follow my instruction or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather on other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, In the evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your complaining against the Lord. For what are we that you complain against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and your fill of bread in the morning, because the Lord has heard the complaining that you utter against him, what are we? Your complaining is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the Israelites, Draw near to the Lord, for he has heard your complaining. And as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the Israelites, they looked towards the wilderness, and the glory of the Lord appeared in a cloud. The Lord spoke to Moses and said, I have heard the complaining of the Israelites. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat and in the morning you shall have your fill of bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening, quails came up and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the layer of dew lifted, there on the surface of the wilderness was a fine flaky substance, as fine as frost on the ground. When the Israelites saw it, they said to one another, What is this? for they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. Let's talk about scarcity and the real experience of scarcity that the Hebrews have in this text. And then we'll talk about the abundance part. The Hebrews, as far as we can tell, are legitimately running out of options. They're actually hungry, experiencing real scarcity. There's not enough food. 
If you have ever experienced food insecurity, you know that this is terrifying and terrible. So when Moses asks them to be satisfied by what God provides each day and to trust there will be enough the next day, that's an ominous, deeply challenging task to body and soul. This is not like telling people who have a trust fund to trust that there's money for the future. This is telling a famished population to gather just enough for one day at a time. I would have grumbled. I would have screamed. I would have screamed, no, we need to think of tomorrow and the next day. We need to make a store of grain to carry with us. We need to ration so there's enough for three weeks at a time. That's what I've been doing in the pandemic, to be honest. When we go to the store for only three weeks, we get three, every three weeks, we get three weeks of food, but also a lot of frozen food to keep lasting us for longer, though the ice cream does go pretty fast. I have been trained from a very young age that to be a responsible steward of resources is to get as much as I can now so there's enough for the future. And I'm living into that training now too in my life. I'm about to start a savings account for a down payment for a house and for a retirement, which I've never done before. And even though this is radically against the lessons of this Bible story, in the norms of my society, to start saving for retirement as late as 31 is actually considered irresponsible. Oof. Okay, I'm going to be speaking very vulnerably about money on this whole episode, so I might as well get used to it now. Here we go. Now let's talk about resources. I was raised middle to upper middle class, depending on the time in my life but I was always completely immersed in very wealthy communities around me. I won't go into my entire class story, but what's relevant for you to know is that even though my dad made a steady good income working as a, for public relations companies in corporate America, we often felt like their quote wasn't enough. Some of that was because my father was irresponsible with money and with spending. But I also believe it's because the class conditioning we lived in, in which my family inherited, was part of a phenomenon that the more you have, the more it feels like you need, and the more fear there is of losing it. It was also because we lived in expensive places with a high mortgage and property taxes that supported well-funded schools. To sustain that kind of life, you need money. People around us in my early childhood were some of America's 1%, investment bankers, CEOs. The houses I played up in, I, I played in growing up were always mansions, where the families were constantly upsizing to bigger homes. Upsizing, that's a word I haven't heard in a long time. Except for ours, which was a small ranch house, and in comparison, it always felt like we had very little. Even though, as I said, my dad made a very good income for most of my childhood, definitely in the top 25% upper brackets of the economy. I felt, however, often a stigma of shame about the, luxur about the luxuries my family didn't have compared to others around me. So when my friends were wearing designer clothes and we went to Old Navy, I felt like we didn't have enough. And yet we were buying new clothes not used ones, like many of my friends who grew up poor or working class. When my, families, when my friends' families went to France for vacation and we went to Wisconsin, it felt like we didn't have enough. 
and yet we went on vacations, something that is a privilege of those with disposable income in the first place. Or when the standard was to go to a private elite college, and by the time of graduating high school, we had lost a lot of our money due to personal circumstances and my dad's actions, it really felt like we didn't have enough. Suddenly, I qualified for a Pell Grant, which is for the most low-income students. And yet, I was going to college. I was confused, to say the least, about money after all this. Most of us, no matter the class background we come from, get confused about money in some way. The system is meant to make it confusing, meant to make it oblique, mystical, such that we can't make the choices that we want to or live out our values. It's also meant to silence us, to make talking about money super uncomfortable. But here's the thing, the less we talk about it, the harder it is to move it to where it needs to be, to figure out what we actually need and what we don't need, and to transform the system. In talking to friends with similar class stories to mine and learning more about my extended family's relationship to money, I have learned that it is common that the more money you have, the more you feel like you need and the harder it is to part with it. There are some stories about this from Jesus's life, about how it's easier for a poor widow to give away proportionately from what she has than rich folk. Some of the richest people I know are also the most scared to death. Francis Ching-Hua Yip wrote a great book called Capitalism as Religion, which has influenced me a lot. He discusses what Paul Tillich had to say about capitalism operating in demonic ways for precisely these reasons. Manufactured scarcity is the illusion upon which this demon dances, the fuel that feeds the fire of inequality. Let's unpack this. So there's the real scarcity in our system of people who don't have enough to eat or are housing insecure or living in unsafe and unsanitary conditions due to lack of resources. Then there's the illusion of scarcity, the feelings of not having enough that gets created within the system that is always telling you to look up, to pay attention to people who have more than us, making it feel like we have less, or to pay attention to advertisements that tell us we need products or more money to be happy and to be good. Let's talk about it. These two kinds of scarcity, one real, the other false, are hands that feed each other. The never-ending hoarding and pursuit of wealth created by false scarcity fuels the exploitation and extraction of wealth and basic resources from others. It was a huge realization for me as a young person that the comforts I had and the wealth I was surrounded by in my community was not just natural or morally neutral. It was made at others' expense. There was a direct correlation between what we had and what others didn't whether it was in a nearby black and brown community or in a different part of the world. False scarcity breeds real scarcity all the time, and the wheels of inequality keep on turning. The pandemic has been a time of rupture. It has laid bare the brutal realities of our economy, 
which is designed to create wealth for those who are already on top and to leave those in the bottom up against a wall at all times. Mutual aid funds are examples of how we can live as if there's enough for everyone. I have had to assess, as someone who is employed with a stable income right now, who can work virtually, what do I need? What can I go without for the sake of increasing how I share my resources? It has been working class communities who have taught me that there's actually always enough. If there's not today, there will be somehow. In my movement community in Nashville, at a worker center called Workers' Dignity, the parties and community events always showed me how abundance always shows up because community shows up. At someone's birthday party, there was always enough cake to go around or at a fundraiser, even though more and more people kept on streaming in through the door. There was space to be made, food to be shared. Enough for everyone. I want to share with you some of my experiences with sharing resources so that there is enough for everyone for today, which I believe is also about trusting in a God that provides. One is a collective experience of raising resources for black healers, specifically two black women grief workers here in Philly, as part of an emerging movement chaplaincy network I've been helping to build. Here in Philadelphia, as we have built a network of movement chaplains to accompany social justice movements, particularly the struggle against police violence and to defend black life, we have asked ourselves, what does it take to support the black healers in our community in real ways? People who carry the emotional labor of their communities, especially black women, queer, and trans people, are often the least recognized and the least compensated for that work. Yet it is essential work especially in a time of so much trauma and loss. So as part of our spiritual care work for our movements, we are raising money for two black movement chaplains in our group who are grief doulas to fund their work, which they volunteer on behalf of black communities who have lost loved ones. It's been an awesome experience so far, deeply relational and emergent, of building a strategy to share and raise money in such a way that doesn't replicate power dynamics of the nonprofit industrial complex or traditional grant making. The experience of this project has been one of love, learning, trust, and healing, like how I imagine manna would taste. I also want to share about a time it was easy for me to share my personal financial resources and a time that's been hard to show you that you're not alone if you have struggled at times to figure out how you want to relate to money and to sharing it. When my maternal grandmother died, she passed down money to my mother and to my mom's siblings. My mother kindly gave to me about $6,000 of that money. It meant a lot to her to pass down to me because she knew that my grandfather, who was grew up poor on a farm, had worked hard in his life to create wealth for his family and his descendants. It has been my first experience of inherited wealth. I felt honored by this gift. I also felt very clear that I wanted to give the majority of it to a Black-led organizing project I believed in. My grandfather, originally from a small farm town in central Illinois, joined Caterpillar Tractor Company as a young man as a salesman. He worked for Caterpillar for his whole career and was moved to various branches of the company, from the Midwest to the Deep South, in Jackson, Mississippi, to Nashville, and eventually to Birmingham, where my mom grew up. 
When I moved to Nashville for Divinity School, I got to visit the neighborhood that my grandparents lived in while there for a short time, the split-level house in Belmede, a wealthy suburb, which they were able to live in even as people who were slowly and just beginning to build wealth. And this is not an individual story. The wealth my family built in my grandparents' generation was possible because of white supremacy, even if they didn't choose or intend that. It was possible because of the GI Bill, which sent grandpa to college when it did not send black veterans to college. It was possible because of housing practices, which allowed them to easily buy a house and build equity when black homeowners were often rejected for loans. Eventually, my grandfather started investing what he had in the stock market and did well with that. When I thought about where I wanted to pass on that check, I thought about how it was intended for my benefit and how, to me, giving it to black organizers doing work for a better world is in my benefit. It's for our collective benefit, not just the specific roof over my specific head and the food on my own plate. It's for the future I want for myself and for future generations. I don't want the meat pots of white supremacy. I want love, I want possibility, I want community, I want right relationship. All of these things I truly believe my grandfather wanted for me too, even if he would have seen it through a different lens. So with this spirit, I thought of possibilities. I knew about a recently launched project by a comrade in Nashville, Rihanna Anthony, called Water Bear Cooperative Land Project. I'll put more on the transcript about this project if you want to learn more. But in a nutshell, the vision is to reclaim land in Nashville for healing for the black community. I felt deeply indebted to the movement community in Nashville for what I learned there in my four years, and I still do. That's why I cared about giving, work, giving to work in Nashville. But there was also another debt, the wealth extracted from black communities in many places across the country and the world by Caterpillar, and Nashville specifically. You see, some of the projects that Caterpillar worked on with its earth movers was the interstate highway system. As you may know, the creation of the interstate highway system was, while very convenient today, a story of systemic racism. The highways we drive on today in our metropolitan areas were, in a nearly perfectly consistent pattern, built right on top of black neighborhoods. Black communities were displaced, forced to make way for highways like I-40 in North Nashville. When I would drive to friends' houses in North Nashville, Nashville's historically black community, I often wondered what the community would be like today had I-40 not torn the community apart like a rip through a page of a family photo album. I don't know if Grandpa ever worked on selling earth movies that built 40 in Nashville. But I do know that his paycheck was partly paid for by the profits made by the company that did, and that a small fraction of that lifetime of paychecks, which grew in the stock market, was now in my hands, in a check lovingly written in my mother's handwriting, on my kitchen table in Philadelphia. So I gave it to Waterbear. I gave it to Waterbear because I have enough resources of my own for my present expenses, and even for the foreseeable future. I gave it to Water Bear because I know it's just the tip of the iceberg of what is owed to black people in Nashville from white families like mine. 
I gave it to Water Bear because the movement community in Nashville is part of my extended family, and family looks out for family. I gave it to Water Bear because I believe that when black people heal, white people get free. I had to make that transfer of the money to Water Bear within days of receiving it. You know why? Because if I hadn't, I would have quickly internalized that money as mine in a way that would have been harder and harder to pass on as time went on. I would have started imagining what I could have done with it myself, how I've always wanted a headboard for our bed, or to get a new bike which needs replacing, or I could have paid a full student loan. So before I started fixating on what that money could mean to me, I let it go. It was powerful, freeing, healing. But I don't want to romanticize this or pretend that I'm some virtuous angel with money. I also want to tell you about an experience when it's been hard to me, for me to believe that there's enough, when false scarcity has taken over my mind more than I'm proud of. In Philly, there's a great group that collects reparations to fund specific personal needs for black LGBTQ folks in the city. A friend invited me to join the Facebook group, and soon folks started tagging me and other non-black people in the group to give to specific needs, to someone in the community whose car needed repaired, someone facing eviction or needed groceries, or starting a business. I gave a few times, but the more needs I saw, the more overwhelmed I got and I got completely stuck. I even started resenting the requests. I told myself all sort of stories about why, because the communications mechanism didn't work well for me, or because I wasn't in deep relationship with the people involved. And I think there's some truth to those reasons, in terms of the structures that you want to share resources through and how it works logistically. But why the resentment and so much resistance? Suddenly, that $50 that I'm perfectly fine spending on a new gadget for myself or some new clothes became impossibly hard to part with, even when people were asking in the group for life-saving needs. I'm really wanting to explore this more in myself, what the dynamics are inside of me. I know that it has something to do with the manufactured scarcity I experience as someone raised white in a middle and upper middle class worlds and surrounded by wealth but where it feels like there's never enough. I can feel it inside of me, almost a physical phenomenon. Do you know what that feels like? Whereas when I was passing on money to Water Bear, I felt grounded in my body and whole. I suddenly froze up and felt a block in my chest around the ask with the Facebook group. Both were in my mind's reparations, but suddenly my trust was gone, my trust that I had enough. What kind of spiritual practice might I need to shift this? What kind of prayer or song might I sing to remind me that I have enough and I can part with funds in order to ensure a black trans woman in my community has a place to stay? Because I believe this, like with the Hebrews in the wilderness, I believe that this is a deeply spiritual issue. The Hebrews faced real hunger and scarcity. I faced imagined scarcity. 
but the message is the same. Trust God. God will provide. The truth that God will provide is as anti-capitalist as it comes. It means that as people of faith who follow the God of Moses, we don't place our trust in the stock market or the housing market or even the human economy at all. We don't place our trust in foundations either. Can I get an amen, people in the nonprofit world? We don't place our trust in stewardship pledge campaigns. We trust God. Try that on. Can you imagine what the world would look like if everyone who claims to be Christian took their faith out of the stock market and put it in a God of justice and righteousness who makes enough for all, who promises manna in the desert, not dividends made on the backs of slaves? In the evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. In the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord. Give us this day our daily bread. No more, no less. May it be so. We often close or start with a meditation, but I think I am getting the Holy Spirit upon me, so I'm just going to go ahead and pray us out. Sustainer God, you have given us so much. The parts of our body, the thoughts and dreams in our heads, the love in our hearts, the longing of our souls. Thank you, God, for everything you are, for every gift you give us, for your mercies that are new every morning. Help us, Lord, when we don't think there's enough, when the truth is that there is. Help us to lean into radical trust in you. Help us to have true faith. Help us to share. Train us each day to look up to you, not to those at the top of the economy, as our goal and our pursuit. Draw us near to you. Through the power of Jesus, your Son, help us to disinvest from empire, to leave the meat pots behind. Help us to find ourselves, God, as your children, in the wilderness, with our tongues out of our mouths, experiencing your grace, overwhelmed by your provision. Can you take an action this week that helps you to trust in God that there's enough for all of us and enough for you for today? Maybe that means sending resources to a gift to a local organizing project or to a person in your community who needs it more than you right now. Maybe it means giving a little more than you feel comfortable with while praying. And if it's possible for you to set up monthly giving to somewhere you believe in to ensure that month by month, there's enough for that moment of the work. Also, talk about it. 
I have learned from friends who do much more work around moving money than I do, that talking about money frees us into taking a more liberate, having a more liberatory relationship with money. Because silence breeds shame. And I can tell you, even if your story with money is really different from mine, I'm sure that shame shows up somewhere in it. Shame is white supremacist capitalism's constant and necessary companion. We are shifting into a new season of fall. Thank God I'm ready for these breezes. For our Jewish comrades, it's about to be a new year. For Christians, we can look to the leaves on the ground as reminders of the manna that fell from God and perpetually be reminded of the ongoing work of trust in the abundance of the earth, even when human systems make scarcity. Sooner than we know it, it will be Advent. A new world is always coming. Thank you so much to our sound editor this week, Maxwell Pearl. Thank you also to my dear friend and housemate, the illustrious Karen Oreck at Bread and Roses Community Fund in Philadelphia. She advised me on educational resources and for years has shaped my thinking on personal work around money. I'm going to be sharing some of those resources with you right now. Check out givingprojects.org for a national learning community of community-based grant-making for social justice. You can find out a powerful resource about this powerful resource-sharing model where people of different race and class backgrounds gather with facilitators for political education and emotional work around money. The goal is to raise a significant sum of money to fund local grassroots organizing for racial, gender, or environmental justice. These giving projects are often very transformative for folks, like life-changing. You should do one. Like I said, they are intentionally cross-class and multiracial. So that means there's people in poverty or raised poor participating with people of middle-class and wealthy backgrounds and working-class backgrounds, building relationship with each other, doing deep relational work with each other about money and moving resources in concrete ways. I also recommend Hadassah Damien's blog, which has helped me rethink my relationship to money as an adult in super helpful ways. She's a personal finance coach with radical anti-capitalist politics. Sign me up. She's got a great resource called Resilient Donations and Giving Plans Guides for people of all income brackets and a bunch of stuff on divesting from and hacking capitalism. Susan Raffo also has a powerful article that talks about money and the ghosts that it carries in an article called Resourcing, Fundraising as Part of Building Support and Building Community. She brings her lens as a somatics coach and trauma specialist in because money work is spiritual work, is healing work, is body work. Finally, if you are in the top 10% of the income ladder, or have access to big sums of inherited wealth, definitely check out Resource Generation. Resource Generation is the leader in organizing young people with wealth to change the economic system for a just world for us all. If that applies to you, or if you love a wealthy person in your life, be their ally and tell them to become a member of Resource Generation and to join a Praxis group, which helps people take on issues related to moving money or their family's money. There's lots of online Praxis groups meeting now, ready for more joiners. Okay, friends, this has been real. Thank you for being with me, for listening, for receiving. 
I've been real with you. I hope you'll be real with yourself in whatever ways are true and needed for you. Because God sees through our lies about money and our illusions and our system's lies. And God can help us to heal what we need to heal. As radical as it seems, we can trust that. The Bible tells me so.